Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Starship Sova, the science fiction audio magazine. Oral delights night and night. We have a fantastic bag of stuff. So please stick around and join me. I hope everyone is fine and well. I went camping just a while, so I haven't been answering a few emails of late. Went camping with the kids and the, the good wife few, for a few days last week. And, well, actually, I went down with the kids. Now, this is the first time I've been allowed to go just with the kids for the first couple of days. Me, 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 it went down. Darren's got two two lads, Carl and Kieran, and I've got Ellie and Reed. And we went, it was only an hour away, to in kind of Osmotherly, I think it's called. A lovely little place, and like I say, <laughs> I didn't realise it was so bloody near, to be quite honest. My McDonald's black coffee that I kind of bought in the Whitburn area, or in Bolden, which is about four miles from where I live, was still warm when I got the car inside, that's how far. But it wasn't our main holiday, but it was just nice to get away, and the good wives came down a couple of days later, and <laughs> it was just like pub Fish and chips and stuff like that <laughs> until, until the women have no fruit. Them kids not been having any fruit. So had a great time. Last blooming day, poured down. We had a gorgeous weather. Last day, packing the tent away, poured down, soaking wet. So I've got now the thing to dry out. So there you go. So yes, thank you for joining me on this Oral Delights night. First up, we have a nice little poem. They arrived by Mark Rich appeared in Asimov's March 2007. They arrived the way we do on the commuter rail, suited strangers on their way to work, with finny fingers and blue complexions, 
as if the poisons drifting through Boston Bay forced them finally up for air and for jobs on land. What do you do, buddy? I asked one. I am part of an invasion force, he said. We conquer alien civilizations. I thought it sounded like quite the task and said so. Like yours, he added. I only nodded, having heard the story. The way so many others had been before, these folk from the Bay are too smart and have too many of their own concerns when six o'clock rolls around, beer gardens, private dinners, even catching a couple of films to be too efficient at what they do over the long haul. Still, some have admirable industry, and whole boroughs, I hear, lie conquered. I wake some mornings expecting to hear the bugle call to defense, but hear only a few dogs barking, probably at themselves, and the rolling of the commuters. Sometimes a week will roll by without my catching a glimpse of an invader mowing a lawn or weighing down a park bench, although somewhere or other I feel sure the conquest rolls on. Thank you, Mark Rich, for that. More poems by Mark Rich coming soon, and there'll be another short poem later on today in the show. Check out Mark's website, links on the site, and our good narrator, Diane Severson. Diane, I forgot to actually mention Diane's name last week, so Diane, my apologies. There's a link on there on the show, on the website now to Diane's CD called Silence. So did everyone know Diane was a singer? Please, I've played some of Diane's music before on the show, and it's fantastic to be quite honest. So please pop over there, check the link, and check out the CD. So today we have Flash Fiction by Alistair Reynolds, and then we have Passion Ploy, a story by Matthew Hughes. Matthew Hughes, one of science fiction's guarded secrets, so to say. So please stick around and enjoy the show. First off then, we have Alistair Preston Reynolds with a little bit of flash fiction. Born 1966 in Barry, South Wales. Welsh science fiction author, as, you, as we know, hard science fiction and space opera there. And that great story he allowed us to narrate, The Sledgemaker's Daughter. Fantastic one. Check out Alistair's site, he's had a little revamp there. And you can check out everything that's going on in his blog as well. I will put links to Alistair's website. And actually, until he packed in, actually work in 2004, he was working for the European Space Agency. How cool is that? So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Alistair Reynolds and Fresco. On the day that the Blue Ones stopped transmitting, the caretaker was doing its rounds of the eye humming and pottering among the other duller maintenance robots. Then, when the news came in, it stopped humming. Near the heart of the eye, the vast radio telescope floating beyond the orbit of Jupiter was a gigantic spherical tank which had once been used to store the water the humans had needed during the construction. They had lived in it, too, dwelling in pressurized cabins, surrounded by water, shielded from radiation. Now they were gone, long gone, but the midnight blue tank remained, like the caretaker had thought one day, a huge, blank canvas. Until the coming of the eye, no radio telescope had been sensitive enough 
to pick out signals of intelligent origin from the mush of cosmic background noise. But then the feast had begun, a tsunami of knowledge almost beyond human comprehension. Yet the messages showed that humanity was still fundamentally alone. All the signals had originated in other galaxies, often at distances that bordered on the cosmological. They had been sent hundreds of millions of years ago, when the dinosaurs were still evolution's cool new idea. But there was a more disturbing thing even than the loneliness. At one time the eye was picking up the messages from about a hundred civilizations, but each only stayed active for a few centuries before falling silent. The net number stayed roughly constant because new species were always popping up and discovering radio astronomy, but they too would be doomed to spend only a relatively short amount of time among the hundred. For a few glorious centuries they would broadcast their cultural legacy into the sky, enriching the knowledge of the other listening cultures. But then, it was often around the time they started discovering some of the more interesting things that could be done with subatomic particles, they would stop sending, usually without much warning. It shouldn't have bothered the caretaker, but in tending the eye it found that it became quite attached to some of those transmitting cultures. It became absorbed in their histories, fascinated by their biologies and outlooks. It hummed their music and pondered their art, and waited with deep, mounting sadness for the day it always knew would come, the sudden roaring silence from that part of the sky. It moved to the part of the fresco which recorded the senders in a distant galaxy in the constellation Sculptor. The caretaker had marked the tank with faint lines of celestial latitude and longitude. At the precise coordinates of the transmitting civilization, it had painted a spiral galaxy much like our own. An impressionistic swirl of white and ochre, it was one of the first galaxies that the caretaker had painted, and while it had gained proficiency since, there were better ones dotted all around the fresco, there was a certain charm to this effort which appealed to it. Two-thirds out from the core, the caretaker had marked the location of the transmitting culture's solar system. It thought of them blue, tentacled, aquatic beings with a reproductive system so intricate it had taken the caretaker decades to work out how many sexes they had. Their music had been even trickier, sounding at first pass like synchronized drowning. But the caretaker had persisted, and after a while it had even caught itself humming some of the more accessible bits. But they were gone now. Silent. Nothing for it, then. With sadness in its heart, but at the same time emboldened by the execution of a solemn task it knew must be done, 
The caretaker prepared the precise shade of midnight blue it needed. When it was ready, it carefully stippled the galaxy into oblivion, like a master picture restore, removing a blemish. The caretaker was very good at its work, and when it was done, there was no sign that the galaxy had ever existed. The fresco was up to date, but it would not be long before it had to be changed again. Art is long, it thought, and life short. Just like to say thank you, Alistair, for allowing that story. Don't forget, copyright is Alistair Reynolds. No going pinchy pinchy. <laughs> and Jim Caminella, good favourite of the Starship Sova. Thank you, Jim. Please check out links to Jim's site and Alistair Reynolds. And just a big shout out to Jim Caminella. He is now the proud father of two little children. Yes, he's just, he's got one, two year old, and he's just given birth to a <laughs> chisk. <laughs> oh man bloody good work there Jim if you can give birth Jim's good wife has Lisa has given birth to a bouncing boy Elijah James Campanella fantastic sleepless nights abound Jim congratulations sir it's really well done <laughs> Next on our show, we have our main slice of fiction tonight. It is by Matthew Hughes. Now, it's Robert Sawyer who says about Matthew Hughes, he is science fiction's best-kept secret. Matthew Hughes has a novel coming out from PS Publishing later this year. Sawyer says, Matthew Hughes's template is many things, including a template others should follow to produce outstanding writing. Hughes has been the best-kept secret in science fiction for far too long. He's a towering talent, and Template is his best work to date. Bravo. Now, Matthews's book Template will be published as a slipcase hardback in a print run of 200 with an introduction by Jay Lake and cover illustrations by Chris Eckerman. Now, actually, if you go on Matt's site, there's a special offer for reviewers of his book. So I'll just read what Matt Hughes has got on his site. Special offer for reviewers, bloggers, newsgroup posters and people who like to talk about books in public. In May, PS Publishing will release Template, a standalone novel that I consider to be my best work yet, even though it was written in 2003. I will send off an RTF file of the book to anyone who commits to review, blog, post, otherwise harass the world about it. So... I'll actually put a link on too, so you can go over to Matt's site, and if you want to get his new book, Template, that would be great, and review about it. It's all nice to spread the word of science fiction. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Passion Ploy by Matthew Hughes. What exactly is it? Luff Imbri said. He walked around the object that occupied the centre of the small table in the secluded rear room of the tavern known as Bolly's Snug viewing it from several angles and blinking at the way it caught the light. "'I took it off Shizramulian,' said Dane Gonch. "'Took it?' Embry's round, multi-chinned face showed a mild concern. Providence could be a contentious issue when buying items of value behind closed doors. Shizramulian was only a minor hoodlum. 
yet he moved through the back streets of the city of Orkney, attended by a reputation for sudden and inventive violence. He had also exhibited a knack for locating those with whom he had business. Took it how? Gunch crossed corded arms across a broad chest. I found him in an alley near the slider that comes from the airport. He was sitting against the wall, blurry-eyed and cradling this in his arms. I reminded him that he owed me a substantial sum from a joint enterprise. Like Embry, Gunch regularly invested in highly profitable ventures whose details were known only to those directly involved in their execution. I suggested that this object would settle the score. Then I took it. Embry's gaze returned to the glittering thing on the table. He was finding it difficult to look away. And he was content with that? Gonch's heavy lips took on a reflective bend. He made a noise or two, but nothing actionable. To put it all in a single word, he seemed distracted. But then he has a fondness for red abandon, and once he cracks a flask, he does not leave it till it's drained. That may account for his mood. In any case, a scroop patrol picked him up shortly after. Hmm, said Embry. He again circled the table and examined the item. It is inarguably beautiful, he murmured. Indeed, beauty seemed almost too flimsy a word to fling around in its presence. It compelled the eyes. Imbri turned from the thing, and found that it took an increased effort to do so. He took up the dark cloth in which Gunch had brought the object, and covered its brightness. He kept seeing a ghost of its outline imprinted on the walls, as if it were the negative image of a bright light. I found it best not to stare at it too long, said the big man. But what on old earth is it? Certainly not of old earth, Imbri said. It's of ultra-terran origin. I'd lay a hept to a bent gremlet on that. Ramulian orphanants the spaceport, Gaunch said, in hopes of coming across baggage that is indifferently attended. He has been known to wear a cleaner's uniform, or he inserts himself into a stream of disembarking passengers, playing the affable traveller. He strikes up a conversation with some off-worlder and offers guidance. Then he leads the mark into a dark and out-of-the-way corner and relieves them of his burdens. Perhaps this was in someone's valets. Possibly, said Embry. But why was Romulian languishing with his prize in an alley when the scroots were on the prowl? Again, Red Abandon? It has an unmistakable odour, Embry said. Did he smell of it? Not that I noticed. Then I lead toward the notion that this object caused the distraction. Gunch lifted up a corner of the covering cloth. It does not affect me that strongly. Nor I, said Embry. Perhaps Romulian was particularly susceptible. But the main question is, what is it? No, said the other man. The main question is, what is it worth? You're more knowledgeable than I in the buying and selling of art. Embry stroked his plump earlobe with a meditative finger. I have no idea, he said. We will find out by offering it in auction to a carefully chosen group of buyers. My commission will be 40%. Fifteen, said Gunch, with a speed that was reflexive. They haggled a few more moments and settled on 30%, which had been Embry's intent. When they had executed the mutual motions of hand and arm by which such bargains were sealed, Embry said, I may consult an expert in ultra-terran artifacts. Discreetly, Gaunch said. Of course. There was another brief haggle and a flurry of gestures that decided how the expert's fee would be paid. So you think it is, in fact, a manufactured item? Gaunch said. 
I thought it might be of natural origin. Imbri moved his large, round head in a gesture of indecision. He tucked the square of black cloth about the object, then lifted it gently and deposited it in the large satchel he had brought with him. The thing was surprisingly heavy, densely packed, he thought. He closed up the bag and activated the fastenings. The room seemed emptier now that the object was out of sight. Imbri repaired to his operations centre, a room in a nondescript house on a quiet street in a modest neighbourhood. He travelled carefully, taking detours and laying false trails by entering public buildings that were busy with people, going in by the main doors, then immediately departing by rear exits. Partly, this was habitual caution. A practitioner of Imbri's profession never knew when the scroots might have singled him out for preemptive surveillance. Lately, though, he had found himself caught up in a worrisome dispute with Allwinder Mudgram, a man of blunt opinions and brutal instincts, who was convinced that Luff Imbri owed him a substantial sum. The funds had been advanced towards a project that had not come to fruition. Unforeseen disappointments could blight any line of endeavour, Imbri had cancelled Mudgram, advising him to consider his lost capital a failed investment. But the investor preferred to see it as a debt to be repaid, and Mudgram was renowned for collecting every groat due to him. Secure in his operations centre, Imbri had his interrogator deploy a research and communications matrix that spent most of its time disguised as a piece of battered furniture. He removed the mysterious object from the satchel and unwrapped it, taking care to keep his eyes averted and let the matrix's percepts scan it. Its effect upon him he found annoying, as if it were a spoiled child who kept tugging at his garment, insistently opportuning him with, Look at me! Look at me! As soon as it was scanned, he rewrapped and resatchled the object, then placed it in a concealed locker beneath the floor of a closet that appeared to be stuffed with the kind of items one acquired at jumbo sales. Some of the bric-a-brac had artfully concealed functions that would have drawn sharp attention from the agents of the Archoncate Bureau of Scrutiny. Integrator, he said. Conduct a Class Two inquiry as to the nature and origins. Imbri had designed his integrator, as he had designed the closet's false kitsch, to answer the special circumstances that often arose in the conduct of his business. What he called a Class Two inquiry, for example, was not unlike an information search along old Earth's connectivity grid that any citizen might undertake, except that Imbri's integrator could ease in and out of public data stores without being noticed. That was important when the whereabouts of an item being researched and valued was of interest to the scrutes. The integrator hummed and fussed for several seconds. As he waited, Imbri was vexed to discover in himself a surprising urge to go to the closet and view the object. He got up and paced, until his integrator reported that it had found no matches in publicly accessible records. We will try private sources, Imbri said. Catalogues from dealers and ultra-terran artworks, both here and... He thought for a moment, then named the four planets along the spray that were major nexi for trade in non-human artefacts, and had offices on old earth where such catalogues would be found. Plus any places where curios are discussed. It took a little longer for his matrix to locate and insert itself unnoticeably into the private data stores, but again it came back with no solid results. Nothing from the dealers. I have a partial match, though the correspondence is less than 10%, his integrator said. Show me. The displayed image appeared in the air before him. It was a curved fragment, dark and stained, 
of something that had been broken. It superficially resembled the exterior of the object beneath the closet floor, except that its surface was not bright and glittering with points of diamond-hard light, nor did it shimmer with unnameable colours that ravished the eye. What is it? Embry said. It is tentatively identified as a fragment of the husk of a seed pod from an uncatalogued world in the back of beyond, the integrator said. It may or may not have been part of some native artwork. It was recovered from a ship hired by an artifact hunter from Popsy. What is Popsy? An odd little world far down this bray. The hunter's name was Fallow Wickeram. He hired the ship on Blue Point and was last seen heading toward the glass cloud called the Lesser Dark. He apparently landed on a number of uncouth worlds, gathering such curiosities as appealed to his taste. At some point, the period of the ship's hire was up, and, as programmed, it returned to Blue Point on its own. Wickeram was not aboard, and there was no indication as to what had become of him. What was the last world he visited, Embry said. It has no name, and apparently no attractions, since the records show almost no one ever goes there. Here are its coordinates. The integrator produced a string of numbers and vectors. They meant nothing to Embry. How long ago did this occur, he asked, and learned that Wickerham had met his unknown fate several thousand years ago. Embry thought about it for some moments, then said, The information is of doubtful utility. Record it anyway, then let us press on. The mention of a seed pod triggered a new line of inquiry. The integrator reviewed records of artworks and more commonplace items made from such materials up and down the spray. Several more leads appeared, but upon investigation, led nowhere. Imbri poked about in other avenues that suggested themselves, including the itineraries of any ships that had recently put down at the Orkney spaceport. But any spaceship, whether liner, freighter or private yacht, stopped at so many worlds where they might connect to other worlds that the object's possible routes to old Earth were effectively infinite. Finally, he checked for reports of robbery or fraud concerning recent arrivals to Orkney, but found none in the public media, nor in the elements of the Bureau of Scrutiny Systems that he was able to access without detection. He concluded that if Shazramulian had acquired the object illicitly, the crime had gone either unreported or undiscovered. Imbri steepled his fingers and touched them to his uppermost chin, and stood in thought for a long moment. Then he said, Connect me to the Honourable Hilarious Waregrove. A few seconds passed, while Imbri's integrator contacted its equivalent at the Waregrove manse, and protocols were exchanged. Then an aquiline face, marked by lines of care, appeared in the air before Imbri. You have something? he said, his languid voice unable completely to disguise a note of sharp interest. Something I wish to have valued, said Imbri. And will it be available for private purchase? My plans have not yet assumed their final shape. At the moment I'm considering an auction, said Imbri but to a limited and discreet set of purchasers. What do you have? I will have to show it to you. Intriguing. Waragrove's expression showed an indolent mood, but Embry's finely tuned eye detected a concealed underwash of excitement. I'm free for an hour. I'll be there shortly. Embry returned the room to its seeming unremarkableness.
and retrieved the object. Again he was irritated to experience an urge to take it from the satchel and gaze at its sparkles and flashes. He left the house and walked for several minutes, turning corners randomly, then hailed an aircar and had it take him to a specific corner on the other side of the city. Alighting there, he walked some more, then took another aircar to within several streets of Watergrove's manse and again took a circuitous route to the house's rear gate. The who's there recognised him and admitted him to a walled and overgrown garden. On the far side of the untended greenery was a tumble-down antique gazebo, swarmed by thick-growing vines which also concealed systems that ensured that any sight or sound encountered within its leafy confines would not carry beyond them. Imbri followed a flagstone path to the structure, slipped within and found Delarius Warragrove seated on a chair of black iron behind a table of the same material, sipping from a tall, thin glass filled with a pale yellow liquid. A carafe of the stuff and another glass stood on the tray before him. Would you care to, he said, with the gesture that Imbri's eye noted was calculatedly relaxed. Why not, the fat man said. He raised the glass, paused but a moment to inhale its delicate bouquet, then drained half of it at a gulp. Excellent. They exchanged the gestures and pleasantries suitable to a casual encounter and the time of day, but Imbri saw how Warragrove's eyes kept flickering sideways to the satchel that hung from his unoccupied hand. The formalities accomplished, he placed the container on the table and withdrew its cloth-wrapped contents. Someone has asked me to sell this, he said, and whisked away the covering. Warragrove could not restrain an intake of breath. You know what it is, Imbri said. He was adept at reading micro-expressions, and now saw Warragrove consider, then reject denial, but opt for less than full disclosure, all in the time a tranquil man takes to blink. I know what it might be, he said. I had heard only a rumour that such a thing might be on its way to old earth. The aficionado spoke without taking his eyes from the scintillation. Imbri sensed that the man was unable to resist the attraction. For himself, he found that his annoyance at the thing's importuning made it easier to look away. What is it? he said. Imbri watched the patrician's face closely while Warragrove framed his answer, and was fairly sure that he was about to hear the truth. A myth, the man said. Or a chimera, an object of desire longed for and sought after, though it may not truly exist. The fat man made a gesture that expressed cynicism. That sounds like precisely the kind of thing that a cunning forger would contrive to dangle before the avid appetite. Warragrove's eyes did not leave the object. Well, you would know, he said. Imbri acknowledged the truth of the observation. More than a few alleged masterworks that hung or stood or scampered in the palaces of wealthy collectors had come from his own hand though they bore the signatures and sigils of bygone geniuses. Indeed, Warragrove continued, if it is a fraud, you are precisely the kind of person one might expect to arrive asking, eyes wide with innocence, just what it might be. Let us assume for the moment, Embry said, that my innocence is genuine, and that the item is what it is supposed to be. Then what is it? Warragrove sighed. You'll think me needlessly obscure, but your question has no definite answer. Imbri felt a twinge of annoyance. 
We inhabit an impossibly ancient world, he said. Every question has long since been posed, in all its possible variants and permutations, and answered fully. That is supposedly the overarching reality of our age, admitted Wargrove. But we may be dealing here with another reality. I am, as you have intimated, a manufacturer of other realities, Embry said. Thus you may trust me when I tell you that no other reality exists. And yet you bring me this, Waragrove said. His long, pale fingers reached out and touched the thing on the table, stroked it, then drew back. You must leave it with me. No. I must study it. I intend to hold an auction, but if you care to waive your fee for this consultation, you can be among the bidders. Warwick Grove agreed with an acrility that surprised Imbri. The fat man covered the object with a dark cloth, evoking a low moan from the aficionado, who blinked as if awakened from a dream, then looked at Imbri with a puzzled expression. You did that, he said, without effort. Does its glory not touch your inner being? I hope not, said Imbri. I prefer to be touched only at my own instigation. Now tell me what it is. Waragrove sighed. It has had many names. The Grail Ultima, the Egg First Innocence, the Eighth Pearl, the Supernatural Radiance. Which do you prefer? Imbri found none of them satisfying. All had the ring of empty syllables, swirled about by vague associations, nebulous connotations. He didn't mind batting about such inflated insubstantia when he had been the one to blow air into them. But to be on the receiving end of the perfumed cloud was aggravating. He again studied Waragrove closely, but detected no intent to deceive. Ambiguity will not serve, he said. If you can't give me more than a misty whiff of its nature, then tell me if it has a function. What does it do? Waragrove's brows rose and his lips pursed and Imbri could tell that his latest question was no more likely to receive a hard-edged answer than had its predecessors. Anything and nothing, the aficionado said. Fulfill dreams, but only for those who take care not to awaken. Reveal mysteries, though the revelations are no less mysterious than what was hidden. Transform base dross into rare earth, at least in the eye of the beholder. This is something from beyond our mundane existence. It is like one of the wonders of our species' dawn time, when who could say what might lie beyond the familiar hills, and the mind spun tales of eldritch kingdoms in far-off lands, upon which any fancy might be imposed. Imbri put one plump palm against his forehead, then drew it down to his face, as if the action would wipe away a film that obscured his perceptions. I will summarize, he said. We have an object whose existence to date has been mainly rumor, which comes from no one knows exactly where, whose nature and function are at best untested, and about which vague yet fabulous and mystical claims may be made. And on top of all that, it may be merely a cunning forgery. You have it, said Wargrove. Though I doubt it is a fake, it generates in me too profound a passion. Though I am puzzled by your ability to withstand its glamour. We are fashioned from different stuffs, 
It is why you collect, and I deal. That may well be so. We come from different sides of a metaphysical divide, and each must pity the other. Let us leave our estimations of each other's character for another day, said Imbri, and concentrate on resolving this mystery. Very well. I will advance a theory, perhaps the myriad grails and will-o'-the-wisps that speckle the history of humanity have always been the same object. Say it as a fragment from a higher realm that somehow found its way into our base continuum, an eternal, unchangeable shred of absolute beauty that moves in mysterious ways from place to place and from time to time. Some of those who encounter it are transported by the revelation of a sphere of existence so much greater, so much finer than the dull swamp in which we grind out our little lives. Others? Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns received the same knowledge, but are merely annoyed. Imbri made a tactless noise. Have you spent much time on that theory? In truth, said Waragrove, it came to me as I beheld the object. Indeed, so it is a touchstone for separating humanity into the high-minded and the prosaic. I would not put it that way, but it is not an inaccurate reflection of my idea. And you would include Shiramulian among the elevated, the red abandon addict. Waragrove tried to disguise his anxiety, but Imbri was a practiced listener. Is he connected to this? He appears to have been as taken with it as you are. Waragrove attempted to affect nonchalance. You would feel no need to mention my connection to this matter in Ramulian's hearing. At present, he is dining with the Archon, Imbri said employing the common euphemism for those who were experiencing the unsought hospitality of the Archoncate Bureau of Scrutiny. I expect we will have this business concluded before they tip him back into the streets. That is good, said Wiregrove. Indeed. Embry briskly abraded one plump palm against its brother. 
Very well. Let us defer questions of what and why and where. Let us instead deal with how much. Ah, said Wargrove, on that score, feel free to let your imagination soar. Luff Imbri could scale the heights of passion when entertaining the prospect of his own enrichment. He believed that life, at least his life, was not meant to be an exercise in self-stinting. As he made his way from Warragrove's satchel in hand, he allowed himself to indulge in some pleasantly fanciful speculations as to just how much fatter the mysterious object might make his purse. Thus distracted, he failed to notice the sleek black volant that was shadowing him at rooftop height on a tranquil residential street until it silently dropped to block his way. The dark hemisphere of energy that shielded its passenger compartment was extinguished, and Imbri found himself under the hard stare of Allwinder Mudgrim. I have been looking for you, Mudgrim said. I have left messages. I do not seem to have received them. The aircar's operator's door opened, and out stepped a man almost as large as Dane Gunch, with a tattooed face and shoulders like small hills. Good day, up, said Imbri. Everyone always greeted Mudgrim's assistant with studied politeness, although Imbri had never heard of anyone's having received more than a silent nod and acknowledgement. Let me offer you a ride, Mudgrim said, and gestured to the empty seat beside him. Ip reached for Imbri's arm with a hand whose fingers had been augmented with subtle but strong components. His grip caused the limb to go numb as the fat man was half-lifted into the vehicle. The energy dome re-established itself, and Imbri felt the seat cushion push against him as they were aloft. There is this matter of the funds I advanced you, said Mudgrim. I was promised a profit to make the senses swim. Instead, I suffered a complete loss. There were risks to the venture. They were disclosed. I remember a brief allusion to a remote possibility. Much more attention was devoted to the expected windfall. Pictures were painted, vistas laid out, all bedecked with boundless gain. Without enthusiasm, there would be no ventures at all. I have developed a new enthusiasm, Mudgrim said. I now pursue grim satisfaction with the same zeal I formerly reserved for your scheme. That may not be good for you, Embry said. It will definitely be not good for some. They had flown high up of the city, heading west, and now cruised high above the chill waters of Mordney Sound. The wave-rippled surface far below resembled the wrinkled hide of some great cold-blooded beast. Mudgrim invited his passenger to look down and envision a sequence of events that would end with Imbri entering the sea at high speed. Your funds went to acquire necessary materials for the plan, Imbri said. He had purchased minor artworks dating from the antique period in which his intended forgery would appear to have been created. The purchased works were broken down into their constituent elements, then reordered into a painting in the style of Bazieri, a grand master of the same age whose lifetime oeuvre had been scant. A newly discovered work by the ancient artist would have drawn collectors from at least thirty of the ten thousand worlds along the spray, each trailing funds like a pecuniary comet. Who could have foreseen that a vault of unknown Bazieri's would turn up in an attic? It turned out that the artist had, for years, paid his rent with masterpieces that to the landlord were no more than pleasant daubs. By the time Bezieri's genius was recognised, both landlord and tenant were dust, and the works long forgotten in a boarded-up cockloft. 
they were discovered and emerged onto the market, just as Imbri prepared to go forth with his fake. Prices collapsed, leaving his forged work worth less than the cost of its ingredients. I have heard all of this before, Midgrim said. It puts no hips in my pocket. Just as there are none in mine at the moment, Imbri said. Pickings have lately been slim. Mudgrim rubbed the blue stubble that always shaded his jaw. I will forego the profits that never came, he said. But I will either have back my investment or take my satisfaction in other ways. What ways? A number of people have reason to feel that Lough Imbri has had a deleterious effect on the smooth passage of their lives. I will auction you to them. I might yet make a profit on our association. Embry thought of some of those who would hasten to attend such an auction and pay gladly for the opportunity to carry him off in restraints to some remote location where they would not be interrupted. I do have one excellent prospect, he said. Now would be a good time to tell me about it, Mudgrim said. I will do better. I will show you. Embry opened the satchel and peeled back some of the cloth, enough to let the object's effulgence show. He saw Owander Mudgrim's eyes light up with the same mixture of appetite and dreaminess that had affected Warragrove, and, he presumed, Romulian. When he glanced Ipsway, he saw no overt expression, but the bodyguard's eyes slitted as if what he saw brought discomfort. Imbri replaced the cloth and resealed the satchel. Mudgrim returned to the mundane. What is it? he said. That remains undetermined, Imbri said but it is the property of Dane Gaunch, who has asked me to auction it for him. Hilarious Wargrove will be one of the bidders. He saw no need to mention Chesermulian. Mudgrim's face was not hard to read. Imbri watched the evidence of the man's thoughts as he processed the knowledge that Gaunch was involved, and came to a decision. Wargrove has just acquired the competitor, he said, then added, Ip, home, as the car banked and headed towards Orkney. Mudgrim invited Imbri to stay at his house in town, a dour mansion on the boulevard of Seven Graces. Imbri saw no way to decline. It was decided that the auction would be held in a second-story salon whose heavily defended windows overlooked the private garden at the rear of Mudgrim's house. The date was set for three nights later. Imbri had Mudgrim's integrator connect him to his own assistant, and between them they developed a list of five more collectors who would have both an interest in acquiring the object and the wealth to meet or exceed the exorbitant reserve price Imbri decided was warranted. On the designated night, each bidder arrived independently to be met in the mansion's atrium entrance where Ip relieved them of any weapons or inquisitive devices that might have compromised their host's privacy. Some had brought hangers-on and these were shown to a waiting room and offered refreshments while their employers were led through the house to the site of the auction. Besides Warragrove, Imbri had also had dealings with four of the other bidders, and knew the remaining collector by reputation. They made small talk until Dane Gaunch arrived, nodding to Owander Mudgram, and declining to give up his personal weapon, a medium-powered shocker. At that point, Imbri invited them to take seats in a semicircle of comfortable chairs that faced a long, ornately carved table. On its polished surface stood a portable lectern, before which rested the object beneath its cloth. When Imbri took his place behind the lectern, his view of the object was blocked. He preferred not to be distracted by its insistent brilliance. Now the room settled into expectation. It positioned himself in a corner from which he had an unobstructed view of the proceedings. 
while Gonch took the chair closest to the barred windows. Honorables and distinctions, Embry said. We are gathered to decide the ownership of an article that may well be the only one of its kind in all the ten thousand worlds. If there is another like it, its possessor has not made its existence known. The vendor, Dane Gonch, has set a reserve price. Imbri named an astronomical sum, but the number caused not so much as an eye to blink among the bidders. So, we will start the bidding there. Let us begin by viewing the item. With that, he reached over the lectern, felt around for the heavy cloth, and whisked it away. He heard the sibilant, simultaneous intakes of breath by those seated before him. After a few heartbeats, Gonch and Ip were able to tear their gazes away from the object, Imbri noted. Allwinder Mudgram sat as if entranced, his eyes wide and softened as their pupils expanded, until not even the thinnest rim of iris showed. After a short while, Imbri reached forward with the cloth and covered the glitter again. Bids, please, he said. A collective moan of disappointment met Imbri's ears, then a cacophony of voices, strained and acquisitive. The collectors were on their feet, joined by Mudgram, their faces distorted and their gestures emphatic as they bid and outbid. The reserve price was soon a fading memory, as the contenders piled fortune upon fortune. As he continued to field the bids, Imbri looked to the side and saw Gaunch's thick lips open in an astonishment that the fat man could appreciate. The vendor would leave here tonight, wealthy enough to enter the magnate class. Imbri's own 30% would make him one of the wealthiest criminals on Orkney. The bidding had reached a feverish phase. Two of the collectors, the bids having surpassed their capacity, had subsided into their seats. One of them, a sturdy man with a square face and close-cropped hair, sat slumped and quietly weeping. Imbri noticed that Mudgrim, too, had ceased to bid. He was sending Ip a meaningful look that the bodyguard was silently answering with raised eyebrows and a slight squint in one eye that said, Are you sure? Now Mudgrim's face signalled back certainty, and Imbri saw Ip's hand slip into a fold in his upper garment and begin to re-emerge with something dark in his grip. The fat man reached across the lectern and yanked the cloth free of the object. Once more a silence fell over the room, as all eyes but Embry's were drawn to the item. He heard a sob from the square-faced man. The forger waited for Dane Gonch to pull his eyes away, and when the man's gaze lifted to Embry, the fat man gestured with chin and eyes towards Mudgrim's bodyguard. Ip had also managed to look away from the glittering prize, but stood blinking, his mind not yet fully returned to the business at hand, specifically that his employer expected him to use the weapon he had forgotten in his hand. Gonch's face hardened. He rose to his feet with a surprising swiftness for a man of his size and drew a shocker. Warning, said the house integrator. An inbound vehicle approaches at high. The rest of its announcement was submerged by the sounds from outside, the blare of a klaxon, the thrum of a heavy motor, and the almost infrasonic vibration of an automatic ison cannon firing from the roof. At the same time, the house's rear garden lit up in a blaze of illumination from high-intensity lumens. Imbri looked towards the glare, just in time to see a heavy cargo carrier descend at speed, graze the top of the outer wall, and hurtle towards the barred windows. Successive hits from the ison cannon caused sparks to skate from its frontwork, and turned the operator's compartment into dripping, incandescent slag but did nothing to deter the vehicle's momentum. Imbri reflexively ducked behind the table as the carrier smashed into the window's grillwork amid an immensity of sound. He heard, but did not see, the bars shatter and tear loose from their footings, and the unbreakable panes whizzing through the room like shrapnel. 
The only exit was in the wall opposite the windows, and he stayed low and crawled that way along the length of the table before rising up to search out a clear path to safety. There was none. He saw Allwinder Mudcram, blood smearing his face from a gash in his forehead, squatting to provide the smallest possible target while exiting through the door. Ip, unscathed and now fully alert, covered his employer's retreat, energy pistol in hand. Imbri looked toward the windows and saw that the space they had once occupied was now filled by the cargo vehicle, most of which had battered its way into the room. The front end, hissing and radiating a fierce heat, had landed on Dane Gunch and Hilarious Wargrove, raising a nauseating smoke and permanently cancelling any and all plans they might have had. The square-faced man had also shed his last tear, and those of the other bidders who were not severely injured were deep in shock. Imbri found himself torn between an urge to flee and the inclination to secure the priceless subject of the auction. Miraculously, it sat undisturbed on the table, which itself had been unaffected by the carrier's sudden entry. Since no further danger presented itself, the fat man decided to delay the departure long enough to recover the shining object. But as he replaced the dark cloth over its brilliance and prepared to lift it, he heard a discreet cough. Ip now stood in the doorway, his weapon aimed at Imbri. The bodyguard cocked his head in a clear signal that the forger was to bring the object in no other direction than that in which Mudgrim had gone. Imbri arranged his face and hands in a combination that indicated nothing else was on his mind. He reached again for the object, but froze at the sound of a loud crack. A side panel broke free of the carrier, impelled from within. A second kick sent the thin material flying, and out of the hole stepped Chez Ramoulian, obsession in his eyes, and a long, dark disorganiser in his hands. For the second time in moments, Imbri experienced the chill of finding a weapon pointed his way. He backed away, offering placating gestures, but Ramoulian had clearly not come in search of mollification. Imbri saw the man's thumb slide over to the disorganiser's activation stud. The ziv of Ip's energy pistol was loud in the room. Ramoulian's head lost definition, and became first a glowing orb, then a lump of smouldering black stuff, and held its shape for only a moment longer before crumbling and flowing his collapsing body to the littered floor. Ip again brought his weapon to bear on Imbri, the fingers of his other hand beckoning. The fat man took up the object, snuggled the cloth around it, and went where he was bid. They passed along corridors and through a number of imposing doors, until they came to a fortified room in which Alwender Mudgram had sequestered himself. When Ip reported the events concerning Ramulian and declared the situation secure, Mudgram emerged from his redoubt. The room's facilities had sealed the wound in his forehead, but the blood still stained his face. Without a word, he took the object from Imbri's hands. If you're feeling well enough, Imbri said, we should discuss my compensation. I am feeling adequate, Mudgram said, but am not aware that you are due anything. I recall the bidding, Imbri said and named the gargantuan sum that had been the last bid offered. Then Romulian interrupted. I was to receive a 30% commission. Mudgram tucked the object securely under his arm. I remember a different series of events. As the bidding intensified, the auctioneer uncovered the object and distracted the bidders. Then Romulian entered. Were these two events coincidental? Entirely, Embry said. Hmm, said Mudgram. In any case... Matters have now marched off in a new direction. The vendor who promised to pay your commission has instead passed permanently beyond buying and selling. Indeed, he has expired without known heirs. 
carelessly leaving his former possession unattended on another's property, where it is now seized under the rule of evident domain. Should that not be eminent domain? Embry said, but Mudgrim had Ip show the fat man his evidence. After Ip had flourished his weapon under Embry's nose, the forger said, What about the others? Mudgrim gave the matter some brief thought, then explained that the bidders, albeit unwittingly, became participants in a matter that could not be allowed to come to the attention of the Bureau of Scrutiny. Mudgrim would summon discreet helpers, who would remove all traces of the incident. Regrettably, he continued, my guests have to be included among those traces. If questioned, they might give answers that must inevitably lead to further intrusions into my affairs by the scrutes. It is better for all concerned if we simply seal off those avenues of inquiry before they are opened. There was a silence. Then Imbri said, What of me? Mudgrim gave the forger a look, in which Imbri felt himself weighed and subjected to some internal calculation. You and I may do business again some day. Thus, once matters are tidied up, you may leave. And the object? There could be other bidders. I have developed an attachment to it, Mudgrim said. It will remain with me. He paused, and again Imbri sensed the efforts of some inner arithmetic. But in recompense for your efforts, I will freely cancel the debt you owe me from the Beziari affair. Mudgrim inclined his head and smiled in a manner that assured Imbri that he need not thank his benefactor. The moment Imbri returned to his operation centre, his integrator sought his attention. It referred him to the research and communications matrix. More information has accrued in regard to criminality at the spaceport, it said. Imbri sat in the matrix's chair. The matter is now moot, but tell me. A private space yacht owned by a wealthy off-worlder named Caterpol stayed in a berth beyond the time its owner had contracted for. When port officials investigated, they found the man dead in the main saloon. His possessions appeared to have been rifled. Romulian, said Imbri. Likely so. Here is the interesting part. Caterpol was a dilettante who poked about the far edges of the spray, collecting oddments and curios. Some part of his poking occurred in and around the lesser dark. Ah, said Imbri. The integrator continued. Someone had winnowed the cargo. Some small but valuable pieces had been placed on the floor as if sorted for removal. But the only item taken is described in Catterpaul's notes as Seed Pod, Immature, Northern Continent, Unnamed World. The coordinates were the same as those of the planet visited thousands of years ago by Fallow Wickram. Imbri called up the rest of the information and perused it thoughtfully. Well, there it is, he said. The object is some kind of ultra-terran vegetative life form, unclassified, nature unknown. Caterpaul left it in the cargo area to ripen, with the intent of planting it in his garden when he returned to his house on Bowden's world. It would seem that it can telepathically manipulate persons who come in range, said the integrator. In order to spread itself, Embry concurred. Its grailness is thus no more mystical than a bird's hooks. It stimulates the passerby's senses, creating an illusion of supernatural beauty. The hapless dupe carries it away. By the time the effect wears off, the seed is far from home. 
the mark, finding that he's been used by a mindless vegetable, throws the thing away and it takes root. He had the integrator display the scan it had taken of the object. The image that appeared on the screen showed no illusion of brilliant glory, only a dark green globe with a pale, root-like tendril emerging. Imbri thought of Mudgrim's inevitable surprise and chuckled. Some days later, Imbri sat once more in a room at Bolly's Snug. He was expecting a visitor who wished to consult with him about acquiring a gilded icon declared by its providence to date from the 18th aeon, but which, Imbri had it on unshakable authority, dated from no earlier than the previous two weeks. When the door opened, it was Ip who entered, and gestured meaningfully for Imbri to accompany him. They left by an unmarked exit to find an air car waiting in the alley behind the tavern. They flew without conversation to Allwinder Mudgrim's house. Imbri was shown to a parlour just off the main foyer. Ip indicated that he might take refreshments from the dispenser, then departed. Imbri poured himself a glass of phalum, sat down and sipped. He rehearsed what he would say to defuse Mudgrim's disappointment. The door opened, and he looked up expectantly, but again it was Ip who filled the doorway. In his arms was the kind of disposable carton in which goods were shipped. He placed it on a low table before Imbri and said, What will these bring? The fat man sat down his wine and inspected the box's contents. Some of the items were bric-a-brac, some were of great value. Two were priceless. He sorted them into categories and gave estimates. Ip pulled at his lower lip. Imbri was astounded to see anxiety on the bodyguard's face, but managed to keep his surprise from showing. Could Mudgrim's affairs have taken a precipitous downturn? The bodyguard spoke again. What would your commission be? For these, thirty percent. For the others, twenty. Ip nodded. Done, he said. Imbri looked around. Does Mudgroom watch us from a distance? For a moment the fat man thought to see a trace of an ironic smile touch the impassive features. Possibly, Ip said. Though that would be quite some distance. Something has happened to him, Imbri said. Ip began replacing the objects in the carton. Oh, yes. The tip of Imbri's tongue touched his upper lip. There are items of considerable value throughout the house, he said. Again, he thought to see the faintest tinge of a smile. You are welcome to them, Ip said. He gestured to the door. Will not the integrator prevent me taking them? Ip indicated that the likelihood was remote. Intrigued, Imbri rose and went into the foyer. Several doors led out of the atrium, all of them closed. Imbri paused to evaluate the situation. He turned to find that Ip had joined him from the parlour, placing the box of treasures near the front door. Now Imbri noticed that next to the box was a device that would function as a portable armature into which the house integrator could be decanted for travel. The bodyguard indicated the closed doors. Choose, he said. Imbri inspected the nearest door. Its panels seemed to bulge slightly. He mentioned this to Ip, and the bodyguard moved his head in a subtle manner that discouraged the fat man from reaching for the opener. Imbri gestured to the next door and received a less unequivocal signal from the silent bodyguard. He crossed to the portal and eased it ajar. Beyond lay darkness. Imbri could not tell if he stood before a room or a corridor, because the moment he opened the door, a restless rustling filled his ears and the doorway was filled by a writhing mass of tuberous vines, 
fleshy and thick as his wrist, from which sprouted glossy dark leaves and fibrous coiled tendrils that immediately unwound and began to sample the air as if sensing his presence. Imbri closed the door. A few of the tendrils remained caught in the jam, and one of them wriggled from beneath the lintel. Ip drew his energy pistol and carefully burned each to ashes. So, Mudgrim planted it, Imbri said. It planted itself, said Ip. An image floated up in Imbri's mind. He remembered Gonch's description of finding Romulian curled up around the object, dazed as if fuddled by red abandon. To Ip, he said, Before you decant the integrator, ask it to display Allwinder Mudgrim. You are not the kind to be haunted by frightful memories, the bodyguard said. When Imbri said he was not, the man instructed the integrator to show the image. A screen appeared in the air, filled with a murky scene. Imbri saw darkly veined vines, wider in cross-section than his own well-fleshed thighs, choking a room that by its furnishings he took to be a sleeping chamber. At first the view, seen from a percept in the ceiling, was a chaos of interwoven vegetation. The fat creepers had crossed and wound about each other as they had grown in search of exit through the doors and windows. Then Imbri imposed mental order on the snarl, perceiving how the different vines all proceeded from a common location, beneath the densest tangle, where the lianas were thickest. He caught glimpses of lush bed covers. Then he saw something else. He instructed the integrator to narrow the focus and magnify. The image enlarged upon the screen. A hand spread across a piece of curved dark object, which resolved itself into a fragment of a husk, much like that which had been found in the ship, rented by Fallow Wickram, that had returned without him. The hand was withered, like a worn-out glove, empty of all but its skin and fragile bones. Above it was what remained of a face. Ah, said Embry. After a moment he told the integrator, You may remove the screen. He took up the carton from beside the door, while Ip finished preparing the integrator for departure. Mudgram's black volant hovered outside. They boarded the air car and went aloft. They flew in silence for a little while. Then the Imbri said, Wiregrove made a perceptive comment. We had noted that the object's glamour stirred a breathless passion in some, like him and Romulian and Mudgram, but evoked only irritation in more earthbound fellows, like you and me. He said that each side of the dichotomy must pity the other. Ip's face remained impassive. He activated Mudgram's integrator and issued an instruction. Intense light flashed from somewhere behind them, then faded, even before the Valance canopy could darken. Is it pity that you feel for Allwinder Mudgram? Ip asked. No, said Embry. Not pity. Thank you very much, Matthews. Don't forget, copyright is Matthews. Narration today came from Gareth Stack. Gareth, thank you very much for that. Another fantastic reading there. Actually, Gareth mentioned that he's working on a novel as well, so I thought I'd just mention a little bit about this. You can find it over at hipnovel.com. Jackdaw Fool is the book. And this is the blurb. And it sounds actually fantastic, to be quite honest. Jackdaw Fool is a stunning new novel from award-winning writer Pierre Rufus, author of Plain Girl's Guide to Chocolate and Plonga, an autobiography. The novel, which has been linked to the finest works of Bello Hemingway, tells the story of hapless everyman 
Igor Cooks, a writer and television critic, and his struggles with encroaching middle age, a broken marriage, a precious daughter and an all-consuming secret. A schizophrenic novel with a breakneck pace, Jackdaw Fool lampoons every facet of modernity, from academia to mass media, consumerism, literature, celebrity and of course itself. Rufus loses a stream of gusher of disrespect on the cult novel, breaking every convention up to and including narrative consistency, character development, readability and unconventionality itself. Gareth, that just sounds one mean book. Yes, please go over there. I don't know if it's out yet, but please go over to the site and actually get accustomed to it. And he says it's going to be up very soon, or actually in Lulu, so there you go. Rounding up the night tonight is Final Poem. Spacer's Compass by Bruce Boston South I shipped, galactic south. Spanning the reaches of unbounded space through the moss stars and beyond, hanging with this crew or that, a rough lot they were, or some just strange, stranger than you'd care to know, for a light year or two on the fly. West, I wandered, galactic west, leaving lovers, changing friends, past clusters hanging in the heavens like burning ingots and bands of flame, Landing always in a different land, a ready cup for alien ways, seeking never so much an answer as a fix, a frame of reference to sift my strangeness from. East I flew, galactic east, against the words of wiser souls, to decaying grandeurs steeped in fog and cultures deadly spent, to language worlds and pleasure worlds, and the mother world or fabled so, a desolation of rust and snow, heir only to its past. Old I grow, galactic old, the polar night now calls my name, and still I tramp the stellar roots from burning white to burning red, jump-cutting lives and lands, fixing no frame of reference beyond the passage itself, adrift in the passages yet to be taken. Space has no directions, and holds all directions at once, a well of radiant possibilities, all matter of strangeness, and the stars are for the living. First appeared in the author's collection Specula Talisman, 1993-1994 Risling Award, SFPA Best Short Poem. There you go, thank you, Bruce Boston. Don't forget, again, copyright is Bruce Boston's. Narration was Julie Davis. You can check out Julie's work over at Forgotten Classics. Julie has done a number of poems for us and a short story. So please check out Julie's site. There you go. That is the show this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope it was all right. <laughs> a couple of mention, if that's okay. If you are, you know, because I'm quite a lot of like narration is going on here. If you are interested in narrating for the Starship Sofa, drop me an email, especially American males. <laughs> I just want American male. <laughs> oh, steady. Yes, if you are keen to narrate a story for the Starship Sofa, or UK males, actually UK females, I'm okay with American. <laughs> This is good. I'm okay with 
American females. Yes, I'm quite handy with that. I've got a nice couple of American females. But, you will start again. If you American males, UK males, UK females, you know, if you ever want to narrate for the Starship Sofa, just drop us an email. Starshipsofa at gmail.com. Don't forget the website, starshipsofa.com. And please do, if you like this, pop over to the forums and sign up there and say hello. It is really appreciated. And it's just nice to get build up this Sofa Nord community. And it's actually it's, it's taken off something not right, to be quite honest. Don't forget, if you want to listen to the second part of EA Van Voort, join me on the weekend and that will happen. And don't forget the back shows, all the Starship Sofa is actually my back shows. Not these Oral Delight ones, they will always be free and they can be found on the website. Just pop over the website, look under Oral Delights, and that's the whole whack is there. But my shows, you can listen to me free every week, and then for 10 weeks you can. And then after the 10th week, don't forget that 11th show falls off the radar, and you can get them in the shop. It just all goes to kind of making it worthwhile for me. And don't forget, if you know, kind of you've had the shows and you listen to them, but if want to donate, that would be just so helpful as well. It, it just makes everything so worthwhile. And it's just like an appreciate, you know what I mean, what I'm doing, if you enjoy this this kind of magazine format, if you enjoy the weekend shows, be kind enough to donate, it really does help, and it is just so appreciated. Thank you so much for listening, do join me at the weekend, I would just like to say a good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.